You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing Islamophobia in America. Why have anti-Muslim hate crimes been so common for the past several years? What does the persistence of Islamophobia reveal about the United States? And how can all of us combat Islamophobia so the United States can be a place where Muslims are safe and can thrive? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. This is our 20th episode and our last episode in 2021. Thank you for joining us. I'm very excited to be chatting today with Dr. Caleb Efflenbein. He is the author of the book, Fear in Our Hearts, What Islamophobia Tells Us About America. You can read an excerpt from his book in the upcoming December issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. Hi, Caleb. It's great to chat with with you. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Brett. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here. Of course. So I have to say first that you have written a really accessible and important book about the ongoing problem of Islamophobia in the United States that I think pretty much anyone could pick up and appreciate what you've written, which is really great. Thank you very much for, for that feedback. That was my great hope for the book. Um, oh, good. It would be it would be accessible to almost anyone who wanted to pick it up. Great. So your book not only describes instances of Islamophobia, nor does it merely try to explain why there has been so much Islamophobia, though that is certainly central to the book. Your book is also an attempt itself, at least as I understood it, to combat Islamophobia and to improve the lives of Muslims living in the United States. So to get us started, was there something that happened or a series of things that happened that made you feel like you need to address the country's anti-Islam problem and work not only as a professor in the classroom or a scholar in the ivory tower, but as someone who was going to work to improve the day-to-day situation for Muslims living in the United States? Around 2015, I started noticing what felt like more and more media reports of anti-Muslim activity in the United States. Mm -hmm. And it really drew my attention. I wanted to find out if, in fact, I was noticing something that had been happening all along and I wasn't paying sufficient attention, or if I was really seeing a change, Hmm. um, a shift. Mm -hmm. And there was a moment in September of 2015, I was—I remember—I was teaching an introduction to Islam course at my school, Grinnell College. Mm-hmm. A student named Ahmed Mohammed was arrested in Dallas. Um, he had built an alarm clock, a digital alarm clock, as part of a project in school. And I remember seeing an image of Ahmed when he was being let out of his high school in handcuffs. The look on his face was one of confusion and fear. I don't think it was just because I had become a parent not too many years before, Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that probably heightened my 
of emotional response to what I saw. Mm-hmm. So I remember going to class the next day and showing a picture. Uh, so this is early in the semester in September. Mm-hmm. And I remember showing the picture and we always talk at the beginning of class about the broader context of our classroom conversations. But this really brought home the point that we were studying Islam in the United States at a time when it felt reasonable to too many people that one, a 14 year old would be suspected of bringing a bomb to school, that the police would be called as part of an immediate response and that no one believed this 14 year old student. Mm -hmm. Even though a teacher could attest to the fact that it was a project. That just pushed me to think, what is it in this country that makes that okay? Over time, I started to do my own research into the subject with the support of lots of people. And that research led to a website called Mapping Islamophobia. This was my way of asking, okay, am I seeing something that is happening around me or am I just noticing something that's been happening all along? Mm And what I found in my research was, no, around 2015, there was actually an appreciable rise in anti-Muslim activity in the United States. For the first time, even beginning to approach the incredible, terrifying spike directly after 9-11. So I want to, you've raised several points that I want to come back to, like the rise in anti-Muslim hate crimes around 2015. But I want to stay just a bit with uh, sort of one of the claims that you make in the book. So you report in the book, based on some research you had been part of conducting, that a sizable portion of Americans who, quote, believe wholeheartedly in treating all people equally and accepting people from different backgrounds also think Muslims could be an exception to that rule. So why is that? Why would people who ostensibly support equality, which in and of itself might be dubious, but why would those people exclude Muslims from the idea that America should be a place of equality for all? That's such a good question. And I really had to sit with that to think about that. So the 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 reference you're making there is to um, Grinnell College poll. It was really eye-opening for me as I was doing research about anti-Muslim activity to see that of all the characteristics we were asking people about that they identified with being American, that that was number one on the list. Over 90% of mm-hmm. respondents said treating people equally is what makes us most American looking around, how do I make sense of what I'm seeing? And Mm -hmm. that to me is really what points to the fact that anti-Muslim activity in the contemporary United States is tied to really deep-seated issues around race and religion in the United States. Mm -hmm. And um, I can point to the work of a few different scholars who can help us see this bigger picture one of them being Denise Spellberg, wonderful, wonderful book called Thomas Jefferson's Quran, hmm. in which she talks about the fact that Muslims in the early moments of the United States, Muslims were the test case in conversations around the extent to which the particular rights afforded to white landowning males 
could be extended and expanded to others. Hmm. Centrally, um, in these considerations, the question of citizenship. Mm -hmm. Could Muslims actually be citizens of the United States? And this was a question of debate in the 18th century. Of course, they had no idea that there were thousands and thousands of enslaved Muslims in the United States at the time among enslaved populations. So from the earliest moments of our country, there were questions about whether Muslims could really be American. Hmm. And if you fast forward then to the 20th century, with the rise of the Nation of Islam and Black American Muslim movements, frequent targets of the FBI and law enforcement, in part because of real attention to critiques of race and racism in the United States. Mm -hmm. Again, questions about whether Muslims could be fully American. And in that moment, for a lot of law enforcement officials, pointing out race, racism in the United States was un-American. So if, if you look at different moments in history, we see that people have questioned whether Muslims can be American. When I say people, right, these are often white men in positions of power, questioning mm-hmm. whether Muslims can really be American. So. What we're seeing today, of course, reflects particular circumstances of our contemporary moment, but is also tied to really deep histories in our country. So I'm going to shift a bit because I have a feeling that many listeners will want me to ask you about September 11th. You make the claim in your book that America's Islamophobia problem, as you just sort of started narrating, cannot or should not simply be traced back to 9-11, or that we shouldn't simply explain America's Islamophobia by saying that 9-11 is the main reason for it. So can you talk a bit more about why that can't be the central explanation for the current 21st century problems of Islamophobia? And what would make for a better explanation of America's current Islamophobia problems? I initially thought about having a chapter on 9-11 up front in the book because mm-hmm. I felt like, you know, this is the elephant in the room. And mm-hmm. I have to talk about that. I have to admit to you and and to the listeners that it was an early editor in the project who pushed me to think about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So all books, right, are the result of of a collective effort. And I'm so grateful for, for this editor having pushed me on that point, because it really made me think about those histories to which I uh, just referred. Mm -hmm. What I wanted to do in this book was to avoid easy explanations. For example, I put that chapter on 9-11 toward the end of the book. I very explicitly say to the reader in the middle of the book, let's not simply point to Donald Trump Hmm. as candidate and as Mm -hmm. president and say, well, if it weren't for Donald Trump, we wouldn't have this massive, terrifying spike in anti-Muslim activity. Mm -hmm. Those are two easy answers Mm -hmm. that allow us to avoid thinking about historical and structural issues Mm -hmm. that are very much at play in our contemporary moment. So is 9-11 part of the picture? Without question. It was an event of truly national proportions in how it affected people, Muslim and non-Muslim, in the United States. It was terrifying for everybody. So I don't want to downplay 
the role of 9-11 in creating the particular conditions in which we see a spike of anti-Muslim activity in the second decade of the 21st century. But I do want to note that horrifying spike just after 9-11 decreased very quickly after a matter of months. Though it remained higher than pre-9-11, the very fact of that decrease says to me, we can't just blame 9-11. I also want to note that though I disagreed with many policies from the George W. Bush administration as they relate to Muslim communities in the United States and abroad, I think the value of President Bush's willingness to speak openly about the important roles that Muslims have played in the history of our country hmm. and the value that Muslim members of our communities add to our lives, I think that was actually very important hmm. and really demonstrated what it looks like to have political leadership who are willing to remind us of a commitment to equality, hmm. to treating people equally. In practice, there were policies that weren't doing that. Uh, so I don't want to I don't want to paper over those policies or suggest that somehow they're less significant because of things that the president was saying publicly. But my research really does suggest that what people say publicly really does matter. So I guess then I want to stay with this just a bit. So in these years after September 11th, before we get into 2015, when you start to see the rise in anti-Muslim hate crimes again, can you maybe paint a picture for us of what was happening for and to and amongst American Muslims following 9-11? What was life like following that day, the months thereafter, in part because of the policies, laws, and wars that followed. How would you describe life for Muslims living in the United States following September 11th, 2001? Early on in my research for this book, I read an op-ed, and I actually begin the book this way. I read an op-ed by someone who was then uh, a young student named Maheen Hawk from uh, rural Maryland. She talked about how growing up Muslim in the United States, and in her case, uh, mm -hmm. in the rural United States, mm -hmm. was to live with fear in your heart. That is from where the title comes. Mm -hmm. She talks about in this op-ed all of the small moments that don't come anywhere near what we would think of as hate crimes. Mm -hmm. All the small moments and indignities mm -hmm. of people saying things just loud enough for her to hear of people making comments um, about the way that she dressed. All of these ways in which she experienced being pushed to the margins. Uh, for her, this really led to growing up with a sense that fear was kind of a normal part of life. Hmm. So while we were seeing a decrease after 9-11 in hate crimes, yeah. I think there is a question about what it meant in people's everyday lives. And mm -hmm. I really try to capture that mm -hmm. in the book, that a focus on hate crimes, I think limits our view about how it feels for Muslims and for other communities of color in the United States to move through public space, yes, to participate in public life. 
that's how I really understand the space between 9-11 and a rise in very public anti-Muslim activity in 2015. So that leads me to something that is pretty central to your book. So I'm going to quote you again. You say, quote, anti-Muslim activity tells us as much about the state of core American values in general as it does about the particular experiences of American Muslims. Could you tell us what you mean by that? What does all of this varying levels of anti-Muslim activity reveal about quote-unquote core American values? That's such a good question, Brett. And, and I've thought so much about that question because we have seen over the last year or two a decrease in very public anti-Muslim mm. activity. Mm. So the, the data on mapping Islamophobia bears this out. That has really, again, pushed me to think about so what does this tell us? Does this tell us that things are all fixed, all better? Or is there something deeper here happening? What I really have been thinking a lot about over the last few years is the link between Black experience in the United States and uh, experience of Muslims from all over the world, backgrounds from all over the world. And what I see is how very quickly majority communities in the United States move to a position wherein it becomes acceptable to limit the space that people have in our public lives. So I see a thread that connects the spectacular rise in anti-Muslim activity with the way that people talked about Black Lives Matter protests. Mm -hmm. That it was an affront that people would be taking up public space to claim that white lives don't matter more than black lives. Mm. So those are the connections that I'm seeing that I think are brought into even greater relief by the very fact of what I hope will be an enduring decrease in public anti-Muslim activity. But over time, in the history of the United States, you see the coming and going of treatments of particular communities. But in almost every moment, you see pretty explicit attempts to limit communities of color access to public space. Hmm. I think the most powerful example of these connections about which I, I write in the book was uh, from 2018. Dante Robinson and Rashawn Nelson arrive in a Philadelphia Starbucks for a business meeting. And within two minutes, an employee has called the police mm -hmm. on them. And they were taken out in handcuffs. I think that that example is so powerful for a couple of reasons. One, Starbucks brands itself as everyone's office, right? And that is not the case in practice. Yeah, um, It has become de facto public space. It took two minutes in that instance. Mm -hmm. But I also think that it's a really very powerful example because it speaks to the ways that you know, right, these larger themes in American history play out in individual lives, in particular, uh, in this case, right, in Black lives. And it just really struck me how similar this felt from some of the other stories that I uh, encountered in my research for the book, right, about being pushed out of public space, about being told you're not welcome in public space. There are these themes in the book that 
in the years since I was writing have come into even clearer relief for me. So I want to return to something that you brought up earlier, which was Donald Trump. And you made the point that the rise in anti-Muslim activity from 2015 through much of his presidency, it seems like, that we shouldn't necessarily use him as the explanatory factor to make sense of all of the Islamophobia that was taking place. So can you talk a bit about then how we should think of the rise during that particular time period following his, you know, he had public negative remarks about Islam and Muslims. And so it seems like, you know, if it's not just sort of the rhetorical power of a presidential candidate turned president, how else would, what would be other helpful ways of us to make sense of what was going on during that time period? I think it's really important to acknowledge that there were some pretty terrible things happening in 2015 early on in the year. Right? We had the attacks on the purposefully provocative satirical magazine uh, in France, Charlie Hebdo. Really terrible attacks. I don't want to downplay that. And in the book, I talk about the fact that just as in any community, there are members of Muslim communities who do terrible things. I think that's where the power of public rhetoric becomes so important. So in that moment, we compare how Donald Trump began talking about Muslims who do terrible things and compare that to the way that George Bush talked about that. Mm -hmm. I think we, we see a world of difference. Mm -hmm. I am pushed to wonder, oh, how might things have turned out in this moment differently, mm -hmm. right? This horrible rise while reflecting certain themes in American history was not necessary. It was not inevitable that we had the outcome that we did. So I think that's very important to acknowledge that by saying, I just, I don't want to reduce this to Donald Trump. I don't want to ignore, right. <laughs> ignore right. that. Sure. Uh, but I also, I think Donald Trump's success in fostering anti-Muslim sentiment in the United States is a reflection of this. By 2015, I mean, we see the fruits of an anti-Muslim social movement that emerged after 9-11 and that was really bearing fruit at this point. So it was a, a coming together, right, of an anti-Muslim social movement, which we saw really powerful outcomes on social media, Facebook, mm -hmm. but also in think tanks in Washington, DC, where it became a little bit more acceptable to speak of the necessity, right, of limits on immigration and Muslims. And I, I think that it's this coming together of a social movement that was over a decade in the making. And that, frankly, included people whose politics we might identify as liberal in, in very public ways. You know, I think that the, the rhetoric of anti-Muslim social movements in the United States, um, no question, influenced Bill Maher. Mm -hmm. who's one of the most prominent liberal anti-Muslim activists mm -hmm. um, in the United States. So I don't want to reduce it to a conservative political movement because it's yeah. not limited to a conservative mm -hmm. politics, though that's a prominent element. Yeah. So I see these two things coming together and the fact that 2015 was a year in which there were some very public, tragic, and terrible attacks carried out by Muslims right. in, um, in Western society. So all these factors are really important to consider. 
Well, then I'd like to shift a bit to talk about responses to Islamophobia. And you say that, quote, in the face of public hate, American Muslims have created a practical path for public life that many of us can learn from. So what is this path? What are some of the strategies American Muslims have employed to make life viable in the midst of uh, so much hate? Yeah, Brett, this was this is one of the hardest things to write about in the book, to be honest with you, hmm. because on the one hand, I see this incredible model in which in the face of some pretty significant public hate, mm -hmm. Muslim communities said, we are open books. Hmm. We are going to be so transparent. We are inviting you to mosques. We are making ourselves available for Ask a Muslim events. Hmm. I mean, we really want people to ask us hard questions. We want people to come to our houses of worship. We want people to come into our homes for meals. Hmm. All of this incredible tens of thousands of hours over years of public engagement, of public outreach, despite the fact that understandably, they were afraid. The very fact that so many thousands and thousands and thousands of American Muslims across the country overcame their fear to open themselves up to other people. That to me is beautiful. That to me is a model of what it means to be a really open part of public life, inviting part, right? Inviting participants in public life. But what was hard about it is that they didn't necessarily have a choice. Over and over again, I came across reports of people interviews with people who said, this is a necessity. This work is a necessity. Hmm. So on the one hand, it's this beautiful model. On the other hand, it is a model that in some ways emerged out of a really tragic moment in which people didn't necessarily feel free to decide when and how they participated in public life. And that to me is such a crucial feature of being American. Right, voluntary participation in public mm -hmm. life. So there is some real ambivalence that I had in, in writing about this idea of Muslims in the United States overcoming their fears. Again, I, I do want to acknowledge that people's fears of Muslims in the United States do reflect terrible things that have happened in the world. 9-11 was a traumatic event, as I said, for so many people across the United States. And so my question is, if Muslims can overcome their own fears about what might happen to them as they engage in public life. Why is it that majority communities or members of majority communities can't also overcome fears that they have to welcome people into public life? Just as I said, it's this real ambivalence that I have. Um, but I think that question is so important. Why is it that people who do fear for their own safety are able to overcome their fears and other people are not? Thank you for that. You're raising very important points. I should also add that it is abundantly clear in your book that you do not think the burden of solving and addressing Islamophobia should fall on Muslims. And I encourage everyone listening, especially non-Muslims, to check out the ideas Caleb has in his book to get practical ideas for ways non-Muslims in particular can combat Islamophobia. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Caleb Elfenbein. 
You can find an excerpt from his book, Fear in Our Hearts, What Islamophobia Tells Us About America, in The Revealer's upcoming December issue at therevealer.org. And you can purchase Fear in Our Hearts wherever you currently buy books. I'm Brett Crutch. This is our last episode of 2021. We will be back in January with a new season of great episodes for you on topics like Black Buddhists and racial politics, Jews and Hollywood, hip-hop and religion, and more. Until then, I'm sending you good thoughts for a healthy and good new year. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Cameron Anderson. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.